The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Gina Chan, West Coast columnist for Reuters Breaking Views. This week, we went to San Francisco to talk to Tom Steyer, the former hedge fund chief who stepped down from Farallon Capital in 2012 and is now running for the Democratic presidential nomination. His July move made him a latecomer to the crowded race after initially deciding to sit out the contest. Steyer says he changed his mind because he didn't see candidates addressing the key issue of fixing the broken U.S. political system. He is committed to spending at least $100 million of his own money for his campaign. He's also spent millions on a campaign to impeach Donald Trump, mobilize young voters, and push environmental state ballot measures in California and elsewhere. It opens him up to accusations of billionaires buying votes, a charge presidential candidate and Senator Elizabeth Warren aimed at former Starbucks chief Howard Schultz and former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Schultz ended up running for the White House but fizzled, while Bloomberg declined to enter the race. Yet Steyer is forging ahead with visits to New Hampshire, Iowa, and other key states. His platform focuses on political structural changes, like setting a 12-year limit for members of Congress. He also said if he becomes president, he would declare climate change a national emergency. The long-shot candidate is blunt about Trump's record as a businessman and why he's skeptical of corporations pledging that maximizing shareholder value wouldn't be their only priority. So, Tom, welcome to the uh, presidential race. You're joining a very crowded field. Uh, earlier in the year, you had actually announced that you weren't planning to run, though you had made you know the opposite decision and decided to sit back and uh, invest in other um, issues that you were working on. You had the need to impeach campaign. You have the next gen, you know, building the younger voter network that you successfully deployed for the 2018 midterms. So, what changed your mind? Gina, I was just very scared that we weren't going to address the actual problems facing Americans. Mm. I was listening to the debates, and I heard a lot of very thoughtful policy discussion about health care, about the Green New Deal, about education, about immigration. But I was very worried that we weren't dealing with the basic problem in America, which is that we have a broken government, that it's been purchased by corporations, that unless we restore democracy, unless we get back to government of, by, and for the people, that none of those things is actually going to happen. And I felt as if we have to deal not so much with what would you like if you could have what you want, but how are we going to get any of the things that we want? And I felt as if, as somebody who's been fighting for these things as an outsider for the last 10 years, somebody's (laughs) got to step up and start talking about how are we going to get this stuff, as opposed to the nuances, very important policy nuances of the specific policy areas. So did you feel like candidates like Elizabeth Warren and and Bernie Sanders, both senators who have been sort of bashing corporate America and talking about their power um, in politics, that they, the plans that they had presented weren't actually addressing the roots of those issues? Look, I just feel that for the last 10 years as an outsider, I've been doing this, that whether it's taking on corporations directly at the ballot box, oil companies, tobacco companies, and beating them, 
and as well as building the grassroots networks that you were referring to, going door to door, organizing students, actually reinvigorating democracy. I was worried that this was a question of a bunch of insiders, mm. all of whom had been part of the Washington establishment, um, and, and whether that would in fact happen. And I felt as if I'm very scared that we're not talking about what the real problem here, which is that corporations have bought this democracy, and we need to change that. Yeah. Well, and you talk about corporations and their role in, in America. Um, and there's been some talk by some of the other candidates about um, the rich and their hold on American politics. Um, you obviously in a previous life became um, and still are a pretty wealthy man uh, from your hedge fund days and, and founding uh, Farallon Capital. Um, what do you say to people who uh, criticize that aspect where, you know, you're putting your own money into the campaign? Um, is that, you know, some people would say that that's part of the problem, but does it matter, you know, look, which side I, you're on then? Look, I think the question here is who has a message that resonates with Americans, who is credible as a messenger for change, and you know, I don't think I think that's a question which only the people themselves can decide, the American people. And so, you know, my argument is that I've been an outsider succeeding in taking these corporations on and winning. And that that's my history and that that's a unique history. And that that's different from everybody else. You know, we'll see exactly, you know, how far that takes me, but that's the truth. And so, you know, we I'm going to say it. I'm yeah. going to say it as loudly as I can. Mm -hmm. I believe that we're in a crisis. I believe the American government has failed. And I think the most obvious example is climate, where you know we're putting every American's health and safety at risk because corporations have refused to allow us to respond in any kind of effective way. Yeah. But does it, um, has any voters expressed concern to you that it's you know, how you are funding the campaign versus, you know, some of these small donors. And I know you've been working on getting small donors as well because you have to qualify for the debates, you right. know, getting a certain criteria. Um, it, has that been no. an issue at you know, all? You have to get 130,000 individual donors, which we've done. But no, what I think what the question is, what are you going to do for the American people? Mm. What Are you saying something that matters for them? I think that that's what... Americans are looking for, they're looking for a positive vision for the future. I think it's been missing for a long time. And I think, you know, that is, they're very much focused on how this is going to impact them, the people they love, the communities they live in. Yeah. And what has your experience been like now being out on the campaign trail? I mean, you were organizing as part of Next Gen and, and some of the other issues you were involved in, but now that you're a candidate yourself, you know, going out to places like Iowa, South Carolina, you know, what, what are you hearing from voters? You know, let, well, let me say this. You're right, Gina. I have been doing this full time for seven years. And so if we're organizing young people, I'm not just sitting in my office. That means I'm going to the campuses. I'm registering people. I'm talking to them directly. I show up to try and make sure that they actually go out to the polls and vote. We did over 50 town halls around the need to impeach campaign in red states and blue states, talking to tens of thousands of Americans about this president and the, what the real American values are. So this 
for, so actually running as a candidate is a little bit different. It's, you still get the immense pleasure of having a conversation with a lot of Americans and hearing what they care about and seeing how actually impressive and inspirational they are. So that's, my, that's super, super, super fun. I think as a candidate, you get a little more focus. You know, there's a little more attention on me as a person because there's a question not just what are you saying, but are you a credible messenger? What kind of a person are you? So I think that's a change. But in terms of the actual job function, I do an awful lot of the things that I did as a political organizer. Mm -hmm. Just in this case, there's a little more focus on me. Yeah. Well, how are you bringing your um, experience in business and finance? How is that experience translating for you as a political candidate? Like a lot was talked about when Donald Trump was running and he was a businessman and he will, you know, run the country as CEO of America. And I don't think that analogy quite works because it wasn't a publicly traded company. It was more like a family business. There are a lot of um, checks and balances that didn't exist at other companies. Um, but for you, uh, being someone who is knowledgeable about the markets, who understands investing and, and that sort of thing, how are you finding, is any of that relevant to right. Well, let me first say one thing about the comparison of Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump is a failed business person. Mm. He's a fake business person. He's someone who played a business person very successfully on reality TV show. But as an actual business person in the real world, he has a string of failures and lawsuits and bankruptcies to show that, in fact, he's not a successful businessman. He's a fake. He's a failure and a fraud. I would say, Conversely, I started a business in one room with no windows and no employees and built it into a pretty big international business. But what I really think my advantage in this from those years is I actually understand what makes a business successful. I actually understand what makes a community prosperous. And I actually understand how countries can succeed and compete in the world and how I invested internationally. So it means I've had a chance to see how the United States can interact with our counterparties, whether they're you know, people who we're close allies with over decades or people who, countries with whom we have extreme differences. I have a chance to see how the web of economics stretches between countries and within countries. So for me, if you really think that keeping America prosperous to letting Americans have rising incomes and rising employment, I think actually it's incredibly important that you have a president who understands how these things work in the short run and the long run and does the things that make not just America prosperous, but give that prosperity broadly to the American people and not just to the richest Americans. Yeah. So how do you see the global economy Today, I mean, markets have definitely been nervous lately. Um, we've seen, you know, not encouraging data from Germany and, and China and elsewhere. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of worries here about the trade war and where that's exactly going to go in the future. Um, do you see a recession coming on? Are you worried about, well, you know, Gina, where this there's other always, dropping? There's always a recession coming on at some yeah, point. Sure. <laughs> That's not the point. I think, and, 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 but let me say this. Mr. Trump's policies are a failure. What he's doing, his trade policy is wrongheaded. It's hurting Americans. 
it's hurting them directly and indirectly. You can, if you go to Iowa, it's hard mm -hmm. to miss the fact that he's taken away their biggest customer. Mm -hmm. um, you can see that he is in a trade war with just about everybody. It's, it's definitely hurting other countries. But I think your basic question is, when you look at the global economy, what's it look like? And the big part is, it's global. We are in a web of relationships with a bunch of other countries, some of whom do things that we absolutely can't stand and that seem that are very unfair to us and that we should put back on. But it's also true that we're, we are connected with them and we don't want them to fail. We want them to succeed doing the right thing because that will help our success. And so when I, he has a very belligerent and simplistic and inaccurate understanding about what makes America successful. And as far as I can tell, everything he does is for the short run and he, he, lets, he does everything to destroy us in the long run. And the long run is catching up with us. Mm -hmm. So I, I think Mr. Trump is a failure in terms of his economic policy. I think he's done exactly to us what he was doing to his failed Atlantic City casinos. Mm -hmm. I think that he is a disaster economically for the United States of America. And I think that the longer he's in office, the more obvious that's going to be. So you talk about... Uh some countries that are doing certain things that you know we don't like but we are interconnected as well as as you brought up so for a problem like china what what would you do so with, with china's them? a pretty, china's yeah. a great example gina you know they cheat economically all the time pretty consistently systematically and in a big way that involves the theft of intellectual property it involves not opening their markets to American companies. It involves cheating in the way that Americans are treated in their country at the same time that they expect full reciprocity as if they were a, you know, as if they were behaving cleanly to us. And I've seen that firsthand traveling around China and looking at industry by industry and asking why aren't there American companies in this industry? And the answer is they can't get a license. Oh, you know, they'll never get into that because this is how we're going to prevent it. Why are you doing this? Oh, that's so we can steal intellectual property. It's very, it's not hard to figure out. Mm -hmm. It's an open secret. At the same time, China's the second largest economy in the world. We don't want the Chinese to fail. Actually, it's very good for the United States for China to continue to do well. So we're not trying to destroy China. We're trying to give China the ability to succeed along with us without cheating us. So we have a, we have a frenemy relationship. Mm. We, we do. We're mm -hmm. tied to them. They do things that we think are absolutely wrong and we have to push back on. But when we push back, we are in a lot better position internationally when we push back as part of a coalition. When it's not just a bilateral fist fight, but where there are multiple countries who are, because we're acting in the right, knowing we're a value-driven, fair-minded, decent partner pushing together for change. And the example I'd use, which isn't exactly an economic change, but it involves economics, is Iran. We don't get along with the, mm -hmm. the regime that runs Iran. They're antithetical to us in so many ways. At the same time, that's a country in the real world. They, were, they wanted to get um, nuclear weapons. We didn't want them to, so we managed to come together with a group of our allies under President Obama to push them not to develop nuclear weapons, but to give them reasons that that would be a better outcome for them as well as for us. And that was very successful. So when I think about China, that's the model that I would use, a granular diplomacy-based point 
where you're actually working with them to get them to stop doing the things that are unfair to us and against American self-interest, but giving them things that will make them succeed too. Because actually, if all the countries in the world have a recession, we're not going to escape. Yeah. We're in a global world. We're tied to these people in so many ways. We should be happy that China has moved so many hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. At the same time, we need to make sure that they're not cheating us or taking advantage of us and that they're playing by the internationally accepted rules that they agreed to play by. So do you think that means rejoining, like, let's say, the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal or other Well, we never of... ratified the TPP. Sure. But I think that was a, a very strong attempt by the Obama administration to say, let's do a coalition deal towards Asia broadly, mm -hmm. which didn't include China, to yep. be exact. Yes. But which was an attempt to say, let's make sure that American economic and commercial interests are respected in Asia and that we have a good working relationship with the people in that region. I think that's the kind of thing we should be doing. There were questions about that deal, but there's no question that that kind of deal is what we need to do. Okay, okay. And going back to your point about corporations and how they uh, control politics here and, and all the money in the system, what is your plan to reduce that, uh, particularly when it comes to tax policy? Obviously, the Republicans had their uh, tax cut that reduced the corporate rate, uh, but it also did uh, things for individuals. There was um, revisions for pass-through income. You know, we have candidates now, some of your rivals, that are uh, thinking about a wealth tax or thinking about a corporate tax surcharge. You know, how are you seeing particularly tax policy right. in, in a Well, let me say this. We have an entire suite of ideas about how to break their political power. Mm -hmm. But if I'm not wrong, Jeannie, you're asking me a different question, which is, how would you change I would tax policy more? Ta tax no. and the po okay. political well, power. But let, me, let me talk about political power okay. first then. Look, for the political power to change, first of all, it's got to be called out. Americans have to understand broadly, this is the problem. This is the problem we need to solve. In electing me, you're giving me a mandate to go solve this problem. So that's the first thing is we have to understand that when we look at healthcare, the reason we don't have healthcare as a right is because corporations don't want it. We have to look and see when we have gun violence, there's a continuing epidemic in the United States, multiples of any other country on earth, many multiples. You have to understand that is because gun manufacturers have dictated that that's how we're going to go. When we look at climate and we see that our climate crisis is urgent, and immediate, and we're doing nothing about it. You have to understand, oil and gas companies are dictating that too. So first of all, you have to call this out and say, to get all the things we want, we're going to have to change this first. Everything else we want is the second stage. The first stage is change the political power. So first of all, you can use the, on day one, you can use the Federal Election Commission to start getting transparency and fines towards corporations if there's not, if they don't disclose who they are so the American people can't see what they're doing. But the second thing is I proposed four structural changes to it. One would be term limits on Congress, 12 years for Congress or Senate. Second of all would be a national referendum. A referendum is when you go directly to the people to pass a law. You can do it in 26 states, and it happens when the legislature refuses to do something that the people overwhelmingly want. So for instance, in gun 
legislation, over 90% of Americans want mandatory background checks on every gun purchase, but we don't have it. They've wanted it for decades. More Republicans want it than Democrats on a percentage basis, but we don't have it because the gun manufacturers don't want it. The third thing I do is I would do as make voting as easy as possible. Mail people ballots, stop all of the voter suppression for sure that is systematic and organized on the Republican side, but give people a chance to vote as easily as possible, particularly people who work a lot, who may have two jobs and find it hard to get to the polls. And the last thing is to make sure that we get rid of the idea that corporations are people. Mm, that, so is Citizens an, United. that is an obvious falsehood. It's a legal falsehood. And on that hangs so much of corporate power. They have the rights of, of people without being people. They don't have the obligations of people. They're not people. But under the law, if they're people, they get to do things that, in, in my mind, have allowed them to control our government in, in a way that's absolutely unacceptable. When you talk about tax policy, you were saying, where do I stand in terms of all the tax policies, both that Republicans have successfully pushed through and some of the ones that Democratic candidates yes. are proposing? So let me just say this. I proposed an asset-based tax before anybody else in this race, mm. before Elizabeth Warren. All of the tax deals that the Republicans have managed to push through have been terrible for the American people. They have been absolutely designed to benefit corporations, the people who own corporations, and the people who run corporations at the expense of everybody else. And I would do them all, undo them all. There has been a absolute attempt by Republicans for 40 years to make sure that all of the benefits of the increased benefit and increased income in society goes to just the richest people. And I associate that with the people who own and run corporations. And so the tax code has been twisted that way. The outcome has been successful. It proves that corporations if they've gotten 100% of the benefit for 40 years, I think that's proof positive that they own the government. Because, in fact, the government has legislated that all of this money is going to go to them for 40 years. And, you know, it, it's incredible. It's, it's tax policy. It's also the rights of working people to negotiate for themselves, the rights of organized labor the rights of working people to sue their employers. It's on and on and on. There's been an attack on working people over 40 years that's been very successful on behalf of, the, of corporations and the people who own and run them. And it has to stop. In fact, it has to reverse. It's been very un-American. It's been very unjust. And it is not sustainable. So what do you say to people who... Uh advocated, especially on the corporate income tax cut, that, you know, we needed to get in line with the other OECD countries. It's caused all these companies to move their headquarters overseas and sort of game, you know, which tax jurisdiction would, would be the most beneficial. It's caused um, a lot of companies to keep their cash overseas. You know, what do you say about the, well, how much it could hurt businesses? So, well, let's be clear. The, the there was something going on. We had a very high nominal tax. So we had a very high stated tax, but no one was paying that sure. rate. Yeah. <laughs> so you could argue fairly that if we, just, we could have a lower rate without all these 
deductions and scams and loopholes and tricks and have a fairer, more transparent tax policy. And that was the argument behind it. And I can believe that. But the, exa- you know, the example of all these corporations are, have their money trapped overseas. They only had their money trapped overseas because when they brought it home, they have to pay tax on it. Yeah. So it, that wasn't like some horrible thing that somehow our tax code was crazy. They were trying to avoid tax at all. Zero tax. So I look at this and I say, American corporations, you know, they're here. They get inestimable benefits from the United States of America. Huge corporations that are worth hundreds of billions of dollars pay zero tax. That's not right. You know, these people have been getting an incredible break from the United States of America in so many different ways. So I'm not sitting here. If you look at the profit margins of American corporations over the last 40 years, they've done nothing but go up. And I watched it, and I know that for years people would say the profit margin has on American, you know, on the Standard and Poor's 500, the list of the biggest public companies, has doubled. That can't be sustainable. And then it would get bigger again. I, there's no question here that American corporations have gotten the advantage of the American people now for at least 40 years, and it has to stop. And when they cry poverty, I am not listening because I'm not a believer. Mm-hmm. And what about um, some of your old friends in the world of finance? There's uh, the carried interest loophole. Should that get rid of it. Come, uh, okay. Uh, and capital gains. Taxes. Capital gains. Yeah. You know, I've heard people scream about capital gains know, being too ages. high <laughs> for as long as I've yeah. heard people scream. I think I heard. And my attitude is very simple. It's like, I don't believe that for a second. Mm. I don't understand for a second why your income should, should be taxed at a lower rate than somebody who's, you know, working as an electrician. Yeah. Explain that one to me. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. Like, are you going to stop doing that job? I don't think so. So I've, I've always thought that, that people use all these self-serving arguments about tax rates. And I think you've got to look through those, those arguments. And anytime someone is talking about their own tax rates, if you don't have a skeptical eye, then I think you're missing the point. Yeah. Well, uh, do you feel like there is a shift, though, in the sort of thinking of CEOs and um, various financiers and, and wealthy people on Wall Street? There seems to be, I mean, even just today, the Business Roundtable came out and said, you know, we're no longer looking just at uh, fiduciary duty to shareholders. We think it should be broader in terms of workers and employees and that sort of thing. And it, some of it might be a bit defensive because they are reading sort of the cultural tea leaves. But in your, you know, talking to your friends in the business world, do you think that there is a sense of starting to change their minds about how they are looking at Well, you know... <laughs> All this? First of all, let me say that in the, in the 1950s, for instance, the people who ran corporations and the directors who supervised those corporations were responsible to multiple constituencies, including shareholders, but also including employees and the communities where they were located. And those laws actually changed in the, 19, in the middle 1980s where the directors of a corporation, the CEO, were charged with the um, care and feeding of their shareholders and their profits at the expense of everything else, structurally in the law. So I'm, t- 
to say that I'm skeptical about those statements would be an understatement. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand why. You don't why, believe that, that they're seeing I, the light. <laughs> you know, I, when I start seeing people behave differently, then I'll believe it. But, I, you know, honestly, I don't believe it. I, it unless there would have to be a sea change. And honestly, it's I, I'm not making a personal judgment about any of these people. That's, they changed the law and the behavior followed. If we want to change the law, which would be fine by me, in fact, the, the community bank that my wife and I started specifically says that you have an obligation to your employees and an obligation to your communities, an obligation to make sure that what you're doing is positive, the so-called beneficial corp. That'd be great from my standpoint. That is a tiny part of American business. And whenever I hear people say things like that, I then look to see in that huge corporate tax windfall that they got from the Trump administration, how much of that got passed on to working people as opposed to shareholders. I'm going to go with zero, a hundred. And so telling me that trickle down economics after 40 years really is going to happen when we're O for 40 years. My answer is I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. So uh, there's still a long ways until November 2020. Um, We'll see uh, how the next debates go, who ends up qualifying, all of that. Um, What is your game plan going forward as you, you know, campaign more, meet with voters more, and just, you know, get sort of your... um, rhythm going in Look, the campaign. Gina, I mean, our, our strategy would be the same strategy we've had for years, which is grassroots. Go out and meet many, as many people as possible. Try and listen to them as well as explain what I'm about and get out there. That's what I enjoy. That's by far the most fun thing to do. And I think it's the most effective thing too. And how will you see, do you think, your especially because you do come from the world of finance, your return on your investment in this. I mean, what, what will, I mean, obviously you're well, wanting I, to win, but what do what, I think success yeah, is? Yeah. Look, I think that there are people in this world who want to be something and there's people in this world who want to do something. As far as I'm concerned, I want to accomplish things. And so I'm not running to be president. I'm running to get things done as president. And so I look at some of the presidents who on the face of it, you'd say, wow, a very successful person was president of the United States. And I'd sit there and go, really? I would view that person as a gigantic failure. They had a fancy job. They won a big campaign. They held a fancy title and people played hail to the chief when they walked into the room and they did a terrible job and hurt Americans. That's not a success where I come from. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you so much. We'll see how it goes. Gina, Good luck. Thank you so much. And what a treat. Even if Steyer doesn't win, he has the funds to keep his favorite issues in the spotlight. It's another dimension to what could be a long fight for the Democratic nomination. That's it for now. We will be back next week with another edition of the Exchange Podcast. I'd like to thank our producer, Freddie Joyner, and all of you for listening. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Gina Chan. Thanks for tuning in.